Friday. We are going to run into a bit of a theme on the show today after about 1.30. And that theme is going to wind up being youth sports. We've got a couple of really interesting guests on this. In fact, we've got three really interesting guests on this. We are going to talk to somebody who is organizing a program, which is well underway, but it looks at how elite youth sports is and some of the fallout from that. There is also somebody who is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he has been a referee in soccer. And the things that he has heard, yelled at him, the things that he has seen have prompted him to create a Facebook page, and it's called Offside. And it's as simplistic as it gets. He encourages people to take video of anybody who is acting out of line on the sidelines as a parent, maybe yelling at a ref, maybe yelling at a coach, usually yelling in general. And he offers $100 for that video. And then he posts it on his Facebook page. And he's already up over 40,000 likes on this Facebook page, meaning he's got about 40,000 followers. And that number continues to grow. He's going to join us on the show. And then we'll kind of look from a Londoner perspective because we're going to be able to talk with a convener of a AAA organization here in London in hockey and also someone who has been a dad of two very successful hockey players. Rob Suzuki is going to join us. He's the dad of Ryan Suzuki and Nick Suzuki. If you know junior hockey circles, you know them already. If you follow the NHL, you're about to know them because both of them are on a fast track to get there. And so we'll look at how things are in London and some of the experience experiences Rob has had as both a parent and now looking at a role as a convener, just some of the things that he has seen. Because when this topic comes up, and it comes up every once in a while, you always have the attitude that this is an everyday occurrence, that this is an every game occurrence, and it really isn't. You'll have outspoken parents. You'll have parents who will actually step up and tell the team's coach or tell the team manager, you know what, I'm going to be trouble this year, and I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't know why that's acceptable. If you know you're doing something, you should stop doing that thing. You know, I'm going to walk forward and fall in that hole, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't understand where that comes from. Well, I'm emotional. Um, Yeah, well, control your emotions a bit better. Go stand by yourself. No need for you to know that you're going to be trouble and then be trouble. That's not anything that makes any sense. That is almost the definition of insanity. So we'll discuss it a little bit. And then later on in the show, we're actually going to go to Vegas. And we will tell the story in about 11, 12 minutes of the Vegas Golden Knights, the best expansion team ever in sports. And really, you can translate that into business. What first-year business can have this kind of success? Even Facebook took a little while to get off the ground. But... This is an example of something done right, something that worked out, and we'll tell that story on a Friday. Got an interesting note, and it pointed to an article in the Toronto Star, I think it was, and that article talks about 
bathrooms in the Toronto area, believe it or not. And what basically constitutes the GTA washrooms of the year. Best bathrooms in the GTA. And it gets me wondering. I'll throw these out there if you don't want to respond, if you don't think you know the answer to it, uh, then you don't have to respond. But if you can add to this, because this is GTA, and their best washroom apparently has come down to five finalists. Mississauga's Aaron Mills Shopping Center is one of those five finalists. This is in the Toronto Star. What would be London's best washroom? It's harder and harder to find one when you need one, it seems. We've got some pretty good ones, though. I mean, Masonville Place, the one that's in the food court at the back that no one really goes to, I like that one. But in terms of public washrooms, what are the best public washrooms out there? We should get a London list going. So let's start that. It's Friday. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca if you have any ideas. But just off the top of my head, I'm thinking way in the back of the food court, Masonville Place, that's a good spot. I like that. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca if you have any ideas. Adrian Cronauer passed away. He, of course, was the muse or the inspiration for Good Morning Vietnam. We'll tell you a little bit more about him in a half hour from now. Right now, though, what we're going to do is take a quick break because we've been talking transportation a lot over the last few months. And as the municipal election campaign continues to heat up in London, we're going to be talking transportation a whole lot more. BRT is going to be that main topic, and it will all come down to which proponents of BRT wind up winning and coming back for another term. If we have enough of those, then things are already solved. They will probably push forward for BRT. They're doing something a little bit different in Detroit, not necessarily as a city, but I think it's something that we need to learn more about. And to do it, we don't really go to Detroit. We actually go to Colorado. And the reason we do that is to find a company that has jumped on board autonomous vehicles. This is not a car maker. This is a company. And they have created software. They've created hardware. And they're looking at how autonomous vehicles work, not in the future. Not when maybe one day we see more autonomous vehicles than buses on the road. But they're looking at how autonomous vehicles fit the world now. And it's a pretty interesting story. We'll have it for you next. My name is Mike Stubbs. You're listening to London Live on a Friday. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Getting around. You can pick any old way. Start with your feet. Move to two wheels. If you've learned how to unicycle, you can do it on one. A lot of people use more wheels than that. Car, bus. Getting around the city, that's something that we are already talking about, have been for a long, long time. What is the future going to be of public transportation? We've seen both Ottawa and Kitchener basically blow up the infrastructures of their city to create light rail, and it made a mess. The line in Kitchener, you can't get there from here. How do I find? No, no, no. You can't get there from here. But when things hit the fall, I believe once they get their trains all set, I think there was a little bit of a delay, they are going to have light rail transit, and they'll benefit from that. It costs them a lot of money. That's the way they chose to go. 
We looked into that in London for a little bit. Didn't quite come up. Didn't quite happen. Still room for it in the future, maybe? Who knows? We've looked at bus rapid transit. Well, the evolution of transportation is going to continue to evolve. And ultimately, we're heading toward autonomous transportation for a number of different things. Not everything. I mean, I love getting on a bus with a bus driver. Because you know what? They have all kinds of great personalities. Love traveling in a taxi. I don't really Uber much. Maybe I'm, I'm old-fashioned. I've only Ubered once. But I love talking to the driver. I learn a ton of stuff every time I am in a taxi. When we look at autonomous vehicles, they do exist. They're doing a lot of research right now, and eventually the test track in Stratford is going to see vehicles unleashed on the rest of Stratford, and they will try those out. So that's a story to watch. In Detroit right now, there are already autonomous vehicles on the streets. And if you are in downtown Detroit, especially during the week, you'll have a shot at seeing them. The company that has put them there is a company called May Mobility. It's not a very old company at all. And Allison Malik is the co-founder and has been nice enough to join us on London Live right now. Allison, how are things going? Things are going very well. How are things going with you this morning? Well, I think things maybe move a, a little more slowly for a lot of us, because if I look back, you guys started your company in 2017. We aren't even, what, two years into your existence, and you've got autonomous vehicles rolling around streets? That is correct. We are. Uh, we were started in May of 2017, so we're actually only about 15 months old. And we have uh, streets running on the, or cars running on the streets of Detroit. So let's picture what one of your May Mobility vehicles looks like. How would you describe it? So it, uh, one of the words that we hear often is cute, which I, I think is great for a, a first product to help people get comfortable with the idea of entering into our six-seater shuttle. It's a little bit smaller than a traditional car. It's built so that way it can operate on you know, city roads and things like that and be a little bit more nimble for how it drives around. So we're not looking at, let's say, an airport shuttle. That would be something to picture. When we hear the word shuttle, it's it's usually that that pops to mind, which is a, a bus, basically, but much smaller. So you're talking about smaller than an SUV? Yes, it's actually about the size of a small passenger vehicle, but we're able to put about six seats in there. And when we look at how to come into a community and help with transportation, oftentimes um, communities have maybe a 30-passenger bus that doesn't have too many people on it most hours of the day. And we're able to use a few of our vehicles to come in um, and replace the 30-passenger bus to provide a higher level of service while still moving the same number of people. When you get into it, is it two seats facing the front, followed by two seats facing the front, followed by two seats facing the front, or is it a different configuration? That's a great question. We actually use a different configuration, so there are two seats facing front um, in that sort of first row, and then in the back seat, we actually have carriage seating, so that's where the center seats actually face the, the back and allow for people to continue the conversation with the uh, with their friends as other passengers and uh, gives it a little bit of a different experience as you're driving down city streets. No doubt. Okay. So they are traveling, as we know, on the streets of Detroit. Can they go anywhere on those streets? 
So part of what we do is we work really hard to make sure that we know the roads that we're operating on. That's part of our approach to making sure that we deploy safely and reliably. So we can't go on every street in the city of Detroit. We've worked really specifically with our partner, Bedrock, to identify uh, a route, a shuttle route that they currently operate. Uh, we went through and reviewed the road network and study it really closely to make sure that we can come out and deploy. So now we're actually looking for new partners in the city that may want shuttles that can go elsewhere. And that'll give us the opportunity to review more and more of the city's road network to see which areas we can automate. We're talking with Allison Malik, who is May Mobility COO and co-founder. They have autonomous vehicles that are on, as Allison points out, not all streets of Detroit, but let's talk about how you actually got your vehicles there. Is this something that you did with the city of Detroit? Is it something you did with a corporation within the city? So the city of Detroit was very supportive of us uh, putting our streets on the roads, and we do work closely with them. However, our enterprise customer is Bedrock, which is a property development company, and they own quite a few office buildings in the central business district of Detroit and provide parking opportunities for the tenants of those office buildings. And the parking can be anywhere from a half a mile to a couple miles away. They operate a lot of shuttles that run around the Central Business District of Detroit, and we've come in and replaced one of them. So their employees then get on one of your vehicles, go to their parking lot, and drive from there. Exactly. All right. Now, is that the way that you see this industry unfolding, or at one point you expect to get a call from a city saying, hey, our bus fleet is kind of ancient. Uh, Can we buy a whole bunch of vehicles and use them as our primary transit vehicles? Could that happen? It could, but I would say that future is a little bit further off. With May Mobility, we really focus on what the technology can do today. So that comes a little bit back to the road network um, point that I made earlier And as we think about what the best first use case for self-driving technology is, we really think it's it's what's called the first and last mile. So in the case where someone's coming to a parking structure, they're parking and they need to actually get to their end destination, or another opportunity where we are looking at working with cities today is uh, working from transit stops and helping transit passengers get to their actual end destination. As we, uh, as May Mobility scale up, we will be able to do more and more over time, and we will have you know different vehicles. Maybe someday we'll even have a bus. But we think that this is the the right place to start. That lets us help getting out and you know get out into communities. We can build you know people's confidence and understanding in what the vehicles are, and start to solve real transportation problems today. So we can become a trusted partner in the future. Allison Malik, with a COO and co-founder of May Mobility. You deal with software, you deal with hardware, but when you have an autonomous vehicle on the roads, let's face it, it's basically a, a robot. And sometimes when we're dealing with software, there are bugs. You've got to fix bugs. If it's on a stationary computer sitting on a desk, hey, no problem. Your things are, are moving around. How do you deal with things like that? So first, we do a lot of testing before we even bring our vehicles out onto public roads. Being based in southeastern Michigan, we're able to take advantage of resources like M-City, which is a private testing area that uh, has essentially mock city roads. So we're able to go there and do a lot of testing with our software uh, to make sure that we get the bugs out. 
uh, before we even bring them out into public streets. Then the things that we start uh, learning when we're on public streets are much more around ride feel. So as we have passengers, you know, how fast should we accelerate? How, you know, slow should we brake to make sure that it feels natural for the riders and also looks natural for the other vehicles that are in the environment? We want to be a good actor when we're <laughs> out in communities driving around. Hadn't even thought of that. So how has that gone? It's gone really well. Actually, last October when we did um, our pilot with Bedrock, we, there's one very tight turn, um, and we took it at a, at a faster acceleration profile than people were ready for. So we, got a, we had comment cards, and we got a lot of feedback, and we were able to change the, what's called a calibration, where we just set how fast should we accelerate out of that turn. We slowed that acceleration down just a hair and didn't get that feedback again. And so now with um, being operational five days a week, 19 hours a day, it gives us opportunities to get even more nuanced feedback uh, about how we operate, and it helps to inform our system. So finally, let's look at what is next. You mentioned that you don't focus on the future as much as the present. Obviously, the future will get here eventually, but you're focused in on what autonomous vehicles are able to do right now. So is it more cities getting involved in the way that Bedrock in Detroit has been involved, or is there another offshoot that we could be looking at? So right now we're working directly with um, property developers and real estate managers as well as cities. Um, we've got quite a few conversations going on. And uh, hopefully we'll get some signed soon, so that way there will be uh, more news out in the public sphere. Fantastic. Allison, thank you so much for explaining exactly what this does, and best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Allison Malik, all the way from Colorado. And some talk about how they're addressing autonomous vehicles. So these things are little. If you look at a picture of them, they look like a, a little shuttle bus almost. But they're actually... Little, small, smaller than an SUV, but they can fire around six individuals. I guess you don't need a lot of room for the driver because there isn't one, so that helps. And right now they are shuttling employees to a parking lot and back, but more and more you're going to see big companies maybe making use of these things. You know, what if all of your employees live in one particular area or a couple of areas. Could you actually do your own little shuttle services to those spots? And if you can find a spot to park in, you know, if you think about Henry Ford and the assembly line, you wonder what would have happened if buses had started coming off assembly lines before cars. If all of a sudden Ford, instead of offering it up, eventually somebody would have offered vehicles to everybody. But if it had been all about Big-time transportation first. You wonder. Because they did have the stagecoach that held all kinds of people. Would be similar. You wonder what would have happened. Hey, speaking of traffic, we do have a note for you. We'll have more with Jacqueline LaBelle in just a moment. But OPP have closed Highway 401 between westbound Iona and Curry Roads. There was a single vehicle crash this morning. More details on that next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. A little unsettled weather could be on the way for us as the afternoon rolls along. Not a guarantee, but definitely a possibility. Hopefully your Friday is going well. We did mention off the start of the show, just in case you missed it, there was an article in the Toronto Star, and it was outlining the five finalists 
for best washroom in the GTA. Got some great public washrooms around here, don't we? We need your nominations for London. Best washroom in London. Where would it be? The one that popped to mind for me was Masonville Place in the food court, the far end. I don't think a lot of people use it, even though it's near the food court. It's almost like you can't really see it. I like that one. There's something about the, the design. I that's, that's my pick so far. I'd have to think harder, I'm sure. But that's my pick so far. Email your idea to mike at 980cfpl.ca, and we'll see if we can get a list going. We have lost a person who was an inspiration for something that became really, really big. The man behind one of the most recognizable lines in movie history has passed away. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Now, that, of course, is the late Robin Williams, but he was playing Adrian Cronauer, who has passed away at the age of 79. And for anyone who has seen that movie, the question was always, was there really an Adrian Cronauer? Was this a real guy? He actually was a real guy. And a lot of what they did in that movie was pretty accurate. He did an interview with the Associated Press back in 1989, around the time the movie came out, and he was asked a bunch of different questions, and here's kind of a synopsis of it. Yes, I did try to make it sound like a regular radio station. Yes, I did have problems with news censorship. Yes, I was in a restaurant shortly before the Viet Cong hit. And yes, I did start each program by yelling, Good morning, Vietnam. Adrian Cronauer has passed away at the age of 79. Next, we're going to start a bit of a theme that we'll carry out for roughly the next hour on London Live. And it is the state of youth sports. And there are a lot of different avenues that we're going to wind up going down in this. But if you have a grandson, a granddaughter, child in any way involved in sports there'd be a lot of stuff hopefully that you can relate to and hopefully stuff that you can avoid we're going to begin by having a conversation with reed reed maltby in just a moment he's responsible for something called changing the game project so we'll tell you a little bit more about that and then we'll look at his thoughts based on how he comes at youth sports on the state of things today. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just ahead of talking about changing the game, got an email from Tony. And Tony says, in talking about transit, you wondered what it would be like today if large vehicles were mass-produced like cars. Think trains. There were thousands of them long before cars. Cars prevail here, although less so in Europe. Very good point. And... Train travel in Europe is something that we'd all like to copy. I don't know whether it's because the countries are smaller geographically or whether it just gets ingrained in how you go about traveling. Somehow we decided to jump into our own cars and we all love our own cars. And I just I I wonder how things would be if if we'd come about it a different way. Could we have done it the way that that they do it in Europe? We're too spread out geographically, aren't we? Is that one of the reasons why cars are maybe more prevalent here and in the United States? I'm thinking it has a lot to do with it. Upbringing, who knows? 
transportation is going to be a topic that continues to be big for a long, long time until we can finally figure out the best way to get ourselves around. Changing the game. It's something that has been a a really interesting initiative. Let me tell you a little bit more about it before we bring on our next guest. Essentially, what the Changing the Game project has set out to do is take a look at kind of the way that youth sports sits. And they even claim that their mission is to ensure that we return youth sports to the kids. Put the play back in, play ball. Provide the most influential adults in our children's lives with the information and resources they need to make sports a healthy, positive, and rewarding experience. Because we get caught up in a lot of things, and I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure whether it is the million-dollar salary or the idea that, hey, if my son or daughter is good enough, there will be a scholarship in the offing. And, you know, you have to look at the scholarship world closely. And I'll, I'll just talk about that very quickly before we bring on our next guest. The scholarship world is a little different than everybody pictures. It's one where you have to weigh a few things. If you have a son or a daughter who is an elite athlete and could be in line for scholarships, you've got to weigh exactly how much of the year is covered. You've got to weigh what happens if my son or daughter gets injured. You know, we don't always hear the stories of people who go to the United States, play NCAA in something. And then all of a sudden an injury stops them and they lose that playing scholarship and have to transfer back maybe to Canada and you lose out on some credits because the curriculums don't mesh enough or the programs don't mesh enough. And the other thing you have to ask yourself, if you get a scholarship offer, it could be from a place like West Upstate Pennsylvania Tech. Well, what kind of a school is that? If I'm applying for a job in the future and I've gone to Western University or I've gone to Fanshawe or I've gone to Laurier, Waterloo, Queens, McMaster, you know, any number of institutions, they have a real respect to them. Did you get a scholarship from a place that had enough respect to it that it's going to hold water when you've got your resume sitting there in front of somebody who could potentially hire you? So you've got to look at it that way. And that sometimes is the drawing card. Maybe it's the millions of dollars. Maybe it's just the competitive level. Maybe it's living vicariously through your kids. But a lot of things can get tainted in a hurry. And there are a lot of people who, once their kids reach the age of 18, look back. Or even maybe after they stop playing at 14 or 15. They look back and they start to think, you know, I really wish I would have enjoyed the ride a lot more. And that's where changing the game comes in. Joining us right now is Reed Maltby, who is a big part of the Changing the Game project. Reed, how are you? I'm doing very well today. How are you? Great. Yesterday on London Live, we talked a little about participation for kids in baseball in Canada, and we found that 
Believe it or not, it's up 15% if you look back over the last three years. And that's good for baseball. The Toronto Blue Jays deserve a little bit of that credit. Overall, though, this brings up maybe a bigger question of participation in sports. Because sports are a lot different today than they were 30 years ago, where you could play three sports at a time and still make all your practices. Now it seems eh, if you've picked by six years old, uh, you're you're needing to throw in four and five days a week into a competitive activity. When you look at the landscape of sports right now for kids, what are you seeing? I'm seeing exactly that. We're seeing declining participation rates, which I'm, I'm glad to hear that baseball's up in Canada because we're seeing in the U.S. and in most sports, participation rates are going down in almost every sport. Lacrosse and hockey are the two sports where we actually see higher participation rates, but that's something because hockey 10 years ago made a decision to alter the way youth sports are being treated. What we're seeing is kids are being priced out of sports. Sports is getting more and more expensive. When you're dropping you know, anywhere between $500 and $1,000 on your kid at 8, 9 years old to play a travel sport, then you start to struggle with how do you fit in expenses for all the other sports or other activities. We're also seeing this, what I call this over-eliting of our children. Everything has become elite. When we're ranking 8-year-olds, and having national championships for 10-year-olds, and we're identifying kids at 12 and saying, this is going to be the next Lionel Messi, or this is going to be the, the next LeBron James. At, you know, at 12 years old, we have no clue what these kids are going to be like when they're 18. Let's give them time to develop and, and trust the biological process. But when we do that, what we do is we create this over-elitism, so we're losing those community recreation sports because kids start trying out for select teams and elite teams and travel teams at younger and younger ages as we do this land grab for children, for our organizations. And so they're no longer participating in these more free play uh, foundational activities that, that create that fun environment that makes them want to stay in sports. So then they leave in droves. And probably the third piece is us adults. It's very adult directed now. So everything is about our goals and our dreams and what we want to get out of it for our kids, and what, though we're well-meaning, they're not really driving the process. There's no internal locus of control. They're doing what we're telling them to do, and the rules are set up for us. And so the kids end up getting pushed out by coaches who just don't know better or parents who are a little overzealous or rules that you know push the kids out so that the adults behave better, if that makes sense. It does. Reed Malpe with us. He is the chief content officer and lead presenter for the Changing the Game project. Reed, if we were to go back to the early to mid-90s when the Internet was really grabbing hold and redo it, it would have been done differently, but it just kind of evolved, and all of a sudden you turn around and you think, wow, okay, this is what we have. With kids' sports, did the same sort of thing happen where now we're looking around and thinking, well, even if we wanted to make changes, this thing is its own entity? Uh, unfortunately, it is a juggernaut. It, took, it got speed and it kept going, and we're having a, a difficult time getting it to slow down or change direction. And, yes, I mean, think about when we were kids. We didn't sport for scholarships. We didn't sport for shoe contracts or, or pro contracts. I mean, we talked about those as dreams. But that wasn't why we sported. There was no end game or investment in youth sports. We sported because it was an activity. It satisfied some of our psychological and social and physical needs as a human being. Uh, it, it, gave, it taught us life skills. It, it helped us develop strong character traits and put us in front of role models who would help us succeed beyond the game. Now, that's not what people talk about when they talk about sports. They talk about getting their kids in situations where their kids can succeed and win and get scholarships and go to the next level and 
all the discussion is around this outcome-oriented process versus or outcome orientation versus, you know, why should kids play sports? They should play sports for creating the successful behaviors beyond the game and to get people to slow down and realize that, say, hey, we're headed in a very different direction than what sports was for us. How do we push it back? Well, it's groups like Changing the Game Project and Proactive Coaching and Positive Coaching Alliance and, and all the other great groups that are out there. The more of us that are collaborating and talking and, and getting the word out, and more importantly, I always use Scott Birkin's quote, you know, the gap between uh, all progress hinges on the gap between who will talk in private and who will act in public. We're talking a lot, but we need some action. We need some real action from some leaders in youth sport that say this isn't the way it should be. We're going to change it. Reed, what happens to kids who don't get to that next level after all that, hey, you're going to do it, you're going to do it, or don't get that scholarship when it's, oh, you're going to do it, you're going to do it. What happens to them? Well, we have a real identity crisis because these kids their whole life, they've been, because we're so, in sports is so ingrained now and it's 24-7, 365, they have wrapped their identity at a very young age as the brain is still developing. They've wrapped their identity in youth sports and they've wrapped their identity in this overpraised model where they're told they're the best at eight and they're, they're going to be an all-star at 10 and all these other things. And so they, they really gain this skewed view of who they are and where they fit in the world. And then when that's taken away, when a kid, for me, for instance, I was five foot eight when I was in eighth grade. I'm still five foot eight. At, in eighth grade, I was the biggest kid in my class. And everybody's like, he's going to be a pro basketball player. Now I'm still five eight. If my identity had been wrapped up in that, at some point in time, somebody was going to say to me, kid, you're too small for basketball or you're too slow or whatever. My identity was wrapped in that. So what happens is I have this, not just a burnout or blowout in the sport itself, but a blowout of the human being. Where do I belong? Where's my significance? Where's my value now? Because my value and my significance and my belonging, which are admiring psychological needs of human beings, were wrapped up in sports and in this identity, and it no longer exists. And that's what we're seeing. We're talking right now with Reed Maltby, who is with Changing the Game Project. Reed, in terms of, of what you suggest in changing the game, does it start with the organization? Does it start with the coaches? Does it go to parents? Is it all three? It, it is. We, we actually we do our best to sort of sit down with and work with all three groups. When I go and work with an organization, I'm going to, uh, to I'm working with the whole state of Nebraska with their youth sport youth soccer groups. Uh, the state brought me in as a consultant. I'm working with all the clubs in Nebraska. Going on a week long trip here in a couple weeks, and I'm going to each club and we're sitting down with each group of stakeholders because the culture is not just team, you know, it's not just coach and players. The culture is anybody that has a touch point with that group that can spark or spoil that the the, the core values of that culture, right? So we've got to get everybody on the same page, and it can't just come from the top, and it can't just come from the bottom. Everybody's got to start speaking the same language and find common ground. So typically I'll go in and work with coaches, and I want to work with them separately of the parents at first so we can have candid conversations. Then we work with the parents so, again, we can have candid conversations with no repercussions. And then we start getting them on the same page. Listen, this is the language you two are speaking. It's very different. How do we start speaking the same language? Where do we find a common ground where we can collaborate to create a better youth sport experience? If all the stakeholders aren't in the room at at the end at some point talking together or they're not in the process together when I leave or when when somebody works with their organization and moves on, what happens is somebody's going to spoil that. If you only deal with the high brass of youth sports and only with the coaches, then the parents don't know and they're not on the same page. They will spoil the experience because they don't know better. Reed, thanks so much for outlining what you have for us. I hope we can talk again. Uh, I would love to, anytime. Uh, this is obviously, I tell this is a passion of mine, so I'm happy to chat about it. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. Read Maltby. 
Changing the Game Project. The idea of scaling things down a little bit. I don't know. Is it too far gone? Reed and I had that conversation. Some elements, yeah. I think it is. It's never coming back. You know, you have minor hockey teams in Anaheim, L.A., Arizona, Denver. You have kids who are 11, 12, 12 years old. They fly to games every couple of weeks because they need the competition and it's not in their own backyard. I don't think that stuff's leaving. The attention is not going to dissipate. So what does that bring? It brings a lot of intensity. It brings a lot of anxiety. And our guest after news with Jacqueline LaBelle is going to jump into that because he's addressing it. But up next, I want to play you a couple of little sounds from actual games that our next guest has made public. And they're not good sounds. They're not, this is not going to be the next greatest hit. You'll see. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We're taking a look at the offshoots of youth sports this afternoon. And one of those things, and Reed Maltby, our last guest, mentioned it, winds up being the officials. We're going to talk with Brian Barlow, who's from Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're going to be talking about Offside. And it's a Facebook page that he has created. Here's an example of something you've probably heard if you've been around kids' sports. Along with the you're horrible, there was a shut up, go home, die. Very creative individuals yelling that stuff. Uh, Brian Barlow encourages people to send him videos that outline parents doing things like this. Uh, Here's the sound of about a dozen grown adults on the sideline in hand-to-hand combat. Those are parents at a game. It sounds like a roller coaster gone wrong. You have about 12 people rolling around on the ground. I would encourage you on Facebook to check out Offside if you can right now. Just search Offside. Watch some of the videos. We'll talk about why these are being put up and why this next interview of ours, Brian Barlow, is paying $100 each for the videos. Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Loads of things happening in the area this weekend. Great weekend to get out. Hopefully the weather cooperates a little bit more than it's supposed to. John Wilson will have his forecast as we make our way through the afternoon. It is a pretty nice day in downtown London right now. Nice little breeze. We haven't had enough of a breeze in a while. It's a lot, uh, a lot of hot air being blown around, and that's kind of what our next topic deals with. If you missed the last half hour, we were talking with Reed Maltby of Changing the Game Project, and that's looking at kind of instilling what used to exist in youth sports on a more regular basis. The enjoyment factor. Parents that just kind of sat back. There was a great article in Sports Illustrated probably about five, six years ago, and it talked about lacrosse and how lacrosse, which, by the way, and I think Reed alluded to this, is one of the two fastest growing sports in the United States along with hockey. 
But it talked about how lacrosse was a sport where you didn't have parents yelling. And they would come and they would have picnics and they would set up blankets in between the fields and they'd watch their kids play. And it was just an enjoyable time. Why was that? Because the parents didn't understand the game. Nobody had ever played it. Now, whether that still exists, I don't know. And whether we need to do some things to make some changes, I think that's universally accepted. You know, you have officials who are berated at times. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but I've also never been an official. I know it does happen. And our next guest is doing something about that. Brian Barlow has started up Offside on Facebook. And you can search it. has over 40,000 likes. So there are a lot of people already who are involved in this. And that number is going to grow because Offside and Brian were highlighted in the New York Times. And just to give you a sense, in case you missed it before news, we played you a little bit of one of the videos. And it goes a little something like this. Now, that's 16 seconds. That video runs for at least another 30 seconds. And the guy does the same thing. He's not the most creative individual. But the message, message is one that's not new. So, exactly what is Brian Barlow hoping to do about this? Well, why don't we find that out? Please welcome to London Live, Brian Barlow. Brian, how are things? Hey, guys, uh, hey, I, I wish I could have uh, listened to the segment before this, but I, I love the notion of, of someone throwing out a blanket and bringing a picnic basket and just enjoying a, 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 a youth sporting event. What, what happened to that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would like to think that that happens more often than it doesn't. My kids played you know, minor sports all the way through, and a lot of those sports ended up being at the house league level, so there was kind of a, a blanket setting or a lawn chair setting. Brian, let's get your background in this. Where does it lie? So, yeah, so I've uh, obviously I played, I played competitive soccer at a high level uh, growing up and uh, blew, blew, blew my knee out. My left knee is titanium, and they told me I couldn't play soccer anymore, and uh, so I got into refing. I thought, well, if I can't play, I want to ref. And uh, lo and behold, I, I turned into a pretty good ref. I ref at a at a high level, uh, all the way up to uh, to some semi pro games. And uh, but my, I have a 12 and a 13 year old uh, kid uh, kids that are also youth referees. I'm I've been around it my entire life. I'm 24 years old. And, and listen, the past seven or eight years, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. And I was standing there watching my son, who is considered one of the top youth referees in our region, uh, not because he's my son, but because he's damn good. And uh, I was watching him uh, as a center one day, and um, he, he made a controversial call. I, I probably wouldn't have blew the whistle, but you know what? He's, he, he's, 12, he's 12 years old. He's, he's learning his, uh, his trade. And, and so he blows the whistle, and, man, these, these, uh, these dads and granddads just lose their stuff. And I'm standing there. I'm not, I'm not in uniform. You know, I'm, just, I'm just standing there, and they, they don't know who I am. And, man, they're calling him names, and they're telling him how bad he is, and he needs to learn how to blow the whistle and not blow the whistle all this stuff because apparently they're experts. And I simply, I'd had enough. And I walked over and I said, hey, gentlemen, the boy that you're yelling at, he's 12. He's developing just like your players are developing. 
And you know what? Those guys all looked at me, and I knew we were going to go one direction or another. It was either going to be a fist fight or it was going to be a gentleman's agreement that we were not going to, we were going to say anything else. And they looked at me, and they took the smirk off their face and go, you're right, you're right, we're sorry. I go, thank you. And they never said another word. And it's unfortunate that we have to take those times. We have to have the backbone to walk up to people and say, you're not going to act like that, which is exactly what the initiative stands for on my offside page. Well, let's look at the offside page. You are asking for people to do what? So I want people to be a part of the solution. Everyone, everyone knows that it's uncomfortable being in a youth sporting event. But let's be honest. We're not, we're not throwing a blanket out. We're not sharing sandwiches with each other. Whenever you walk onto the side of a soccer field, you don't like the other team's parents automatically. And so it causes tension, right? So somebody says something on one side or somebody says something on the other, and then everyone's like, oh, here we go. It's going to be one of those games again. Well, I'm asking people to be part of the solution. If you start to see that, if you start to hear that, if you start to feel like the tension in the game is rising, I ask people, hey, grab your phone. If you start to see that there's going to be some kind of event happen, capture it on video, send it to us on our side. If I post it on my Facebook page, I then give you $100. And here's what happens. The videos that I post sometimes will reach 150 to 250,000 people. It shames them. Is it controversial? Absolutely. But it shames the people. And let me tell you this. I've had one person on one video who was the center of a major negative explosion on a soccer field who is now, get this, a soccer referee herself. I've got another woman who's been on a video who her kid got kicked off the team because she was on the video um, who they were banned from their competitive league, who, um, um, who now probably once every three or four weeks contacts me and says, hey, I- I'm no longer that person. I'm a changed person. I'm a proponent of what you stand for in your cause. And she now talks to other people and talks to clubs and organizations about the negative effect of behaving like what we call a cheeseburger. We call them cheeseburgers on my site. So, uh, so yeah, it's the, I'm asking people to get involved. Stop sitting back doing nothing. And stop being part of the problem and join me and be part of the solution. Brian Barlow with us. Brian runs Offside on Facebook. All you have to do is search Offside on Facebook. It'll come up. It's got a red circle. You'll know that it's there. The number of videos that you're getting, are you surprised by how many? You know, when I first, you know, I, I own a marketing company. I tell people, I tell business, you got to make a bold statement. So whenever I first started, I'm like, you know, I'm going to... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sick of seeing all this crap, and I'm going to do something bad. So I'm going to, I'm going to offer a hundred dollars. I'm going to offer a hundred dollars, and I thought, you know what? I'll probably get fifteen, twenty, maybe thirty videos. I have over four thousand videos, my friend. Four thousand videos. Now, do they just come from the United States? You know, I do have one. I have one from uh, the uh, some. What are the islands in the Bahamas? And I have one from Australia, but the rest are from the United States. Yeah. Wow. And then how do you decide what should go up? Because some of the videos you have, I can't even believe that these are real. I, tell me about it. So, you know, I, most, I would say this. Most of the videos we get is, the, you know, the mom or the dad. Hey, ref, come on, ref, that's ridiculous. You know, okay, that's, that's just going to happen. And we, we, we all know that that's not going to stop to some extent. It's the videos that are really dramatic. It's the videos that involve uh, violent confrontation. It's the videos that involve cussing. It's the videos where the players or on the field begging their parents to shut up or begging uh, their play, uh, their parents to leave the field. Those are the ones that, that I try to put up to let people know, hey, it's beyond ridiculous. Let's stop. Brian Barlow, 
Brian, you mentioned the last seven years you've seen changes. Are you seeing any changes that, that maybe are coming back the other way at all, or is it still a whole lot of yelling at officials for the sake of yelling at officials? Well, you know, I'm, let's be honest. We live in a society where everyone wants to take the picture of the trophy and the medallion and the victory and put it on Facebook because it, it, I think it feels like it validates them as a parent or as a person. Hey, looky, you know, my, my kid's a champion. Look, I'm a great parent. We've got to stop. We got to get out of that mindset that if you have a great player or even a bad player, it's indicative of what you are as a parent. We've got to get away from that. So um, I will tell you this: the past three days, we have received an enormous amount of awareness um, uh, nationally and internationally. And I'm hoping, you know, at the end of the day, I just I hope people realize that we're sucking the innocence out of the sport. We're taking the sport for youth kids. We're taking away the the learning ability of. You know, when you get knocked down, you got to get back up. When you don't get the whistle, sometimes you got to overcome the adversity. I mean, that's what sports is supposed to be about. So, you know, at the end of the day, I started an initiative called Stop, and it's for clubs and organizations and associations. It's it's a it's a it's a whole initiative uh, for them that holds people accountable. So, when you step onto a complex, whether it's a volleyball, basketball, football, soccer, when you step onto a complex, you are being told this is how you're going to act. And if you don't act this way, we're going to hold you accountable and you're not going to get to watch your kid. We have to set that expectation, hold people accountable, and we have to be able to pull the trigger when it happens. Brian, thank you for what you are doing. You're welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. All right, bye-bye. That is Brian Barlow. He has started stop. He started offside. 4,000 videos. And the video that we played just before news of just the screaming, it's it's one you have to see. I'll try and find a way to share it because it's at least 12 adults, grown men. One is in a leg lock by the neck, and they are rolling around on the ground. You look at it and you think, "What is that a, a pen of pigs? Is that what that is? Pigs wearing shirts and pants? It's crazy, absolutely crazy. You know my favorite part of what Brian said? Here's what we need to stop doing. We need to stop posting so many little tidbit trivial things. He didn't call tidbit trivial to validate us on Facebook. As much as he uses Facebook for a vehicle, I, it bothers me how people use Facebook. The adult show and tell. The I'm better than you. Here's what I'm doing. This competition that exists. It exists on Instagram too. And it's sickening. It really is. The next time you go to post something, think. Am I doing this just to show that I'm better than someone or this is somehow validating me? Sit back and enjoy the experience. Don't do something just to say you did it. That's the wrong way to live life. Next, we're going to talk to a parent who came up through minor hockey in London with two incredibly successful players. He'll talk about what it was like to be a parent and what it's like now to be a convener. Our talk about youth sports continues on London Live next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We've been looking at a number of offshoots of youth sports. Let's get another one. The father of OHLers and future NHLers, I'm not afraid to predict that, Nick and Ryan Suzuki, and a AAA hockey convener. Rob Suzuki joins us right now. Rob, how are things going today? Very good, thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Hockey never stops, does it? I'm sure in, in your household, has there even been a day when the word hockey wasn't uttered in the last, oh, I don't know, 18 years? 
no, pretty much not. But my kids did play golf and uh, and soccer. They enjoyed that growing up too. Okay, are they as good at golf and soccer as they are at hockey? They're they're pretty good at soccer. Not so much at golf. <laughs> well, you know what? It's all about enjoyment of the game in the end, and it's something that, let's face it. It, you can lose sight of enjoyment of the game. And as we talked last half hour, there's there's kind of a, a growing movement to say, let's make sure that, that yeah, sh- you, can, you can get to the elite levels, but let's make sure there is still enjoyment. Let's look at your perspective from a hockey parent first. What have you found in going through the, the minor hockey careers and now the OHL careers of Nick and, and of Ryan? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I think when they first started out, especially Nick, cause he was the oldest, uh, I would say I made a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, taking things too seriously, maybe pushing him too much. Uh, Ryan had the benefit of me relaxing a little bit more once I, uh, kind of realized that, uh, it had to be fun and, and taking a step back. Um, some of the best, uh, Hockey parents are actually not hockey parents; they're hockey grandparents because they they have a much more mature attitude about things, and they just kind of show up to the games and and uh, enjoy it, and then and then tell their kids how, how great they played, no matter what happens. And uh, so, I guess I maybe I picked up a cue on, on on those, but it took me a few years to figure that out. Unfortunately for Nick, almost sounds like we need a hockey parent simulator where if you could go through that and and deal with the emotions that come up, the feelings that come up when you get to do it the second time, the third time does change things, doesn't it? I, yeah, I agree. I actually, I've, I've thought a lot about trying to develop like a little uh, seminar or something like that for, for the new hockey parents, just to kind of uh, coach them to uh, sort of say, you know, uh, every shift is not the most important thing in the world and you don't need to, uh, you know, put pressure on your kids to perform because if they're just having fun, they're they're gonna they're gonna perform even better. We always want the best for our kids, though. How difficult is it we to do. balance? Hey, I, all I want is is for my child to succeed, and I'm trying to give them the best avenue to do that. How difficult a balance is that? I think it's an incredibly hard to uh, balance, and that's why you see parents sort of you know getting stressed out and and. Uh, high blood pressure and pulling their hair out at their inks and, you know, acting, acting badly. People that are normally, you know, otherwise, you know, completely sane individuals become insane at, at sporting events, not just hockey. We're talking with Rob Suzuki, who is the father of Nick Suzuki of the Owen Sound Attack, drafted by the Vegas Golden Knights, father of Ryan Suzuki of the Barry Colts, and two guys who came up through the minor hockey system in this area. Rob, when we see incidents, and we mentioned the guy in the New York Times article who likes to video things at soccer games and matches and then post all of that stuff for the world to see and maybe an attempt at shaming some parents into not yelling at the officials quite so much. We tend to see that and think, wow, that must happen all the time. You've spent a lot of minutes, a lot of hours, a lot of days in hockey rinks and besides soccer pitches. Is it a regular occurrence to hear yells or is that something that we tend just to see too much of when it comes up in the media? I don't think it is a regular occurrence. Uh, like you said, I've been in arenas a lot of times and, and I've interacted with a lot of great parents, uh, hockey parents, soccer parents. Um, 
but when it does happen, it, it's uh, everyone's pretty much aghast. And uh, you know, certainly if it, it were videotaped, it would be uh, you know front page news. Do you find that people will try and intervene, or is the loud parent who's upset with the official, or upset with a coach, or upset with a player, just going to yell for the rest of the game and then it ends? Yeah, that's the problem. I don't think anybody really wants to intervene because I think people are intimidated by the the loud person and and they feel like uh, if I go up and talk to him and tell him to quiet down or or smarten up, maybe they're going to turn their venom towards you and then, you know, might might actually start something worse. You never know. So I think people generally just try to distance themselves from people like that. At the same time, situations come up that you have to deal with. And, Rob, right now you are the convener of a AAA program with the London Junior Knights. First of all, in taking on that role, you have experience as to what it's like to be a parent. What was it that made you want to do that? Well, my kids benefited from a lot of other volunteers spending hours and hours uh, behind the scenes making sure that uh, things ran properly for them. So I wanted to give back, but uh, the optics of being uh, a, a parent, uh, a current player, you know, some, I, I experienced a, a few people, you know, sideways glances and, and backhanded comments towards some of the volunteers who were parents at the time. And uh, although I didn't think that was fair, but I, I just thought I'd, I'd wait until my kids were done uh, going through the program before I, I signed up. But yeah, one of the things I... I try to do is interact with the parents uh, and, and help them understand that some of their concerns, although um, valid concerns, uh, um, not to not to sort of make too much into things because uh, I've been there as a parent, so I have that experience. If you were looking to give advice to new parents or parents of youngsters who at the age of five and six are scoring seven goals a game and people are starting to say, your child is really, really good, what would you tell them to be ready for? The the kids that are five and six that are scoring seven, eight goals a game, things like that, um, they don't always they don't always turn into hockey superstars, and I think sometimes parents put the cart before the the, the horse and and get ahead of themselves. Uh, the kids need to learn how to play inside of a, a team framework, and most of those kids are they're really good at individual skills. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would I would just again make sure the kids are enjoying themselves, but the enjoyment should come from playing with their teammates and, and helping their teammates succeed, um, not focus on the individual because uh, the eventually everybody sort of catches up and gets to the same level. And, and if they don't work inside of a team, they're not going to have much success going forward. Rob Suzuki with us, convener for London Junior Knights, Pee Wee Triple A, and also the father of Ryan and Nick Suzuki. I guess one last thing, and that is the officials. Rob, what do parents or hockey watchers and you can translate this into any sports need to appreciate about the role of the official or the referee in games the, the thing is people have to understand we're, a lot of uh, officials are, are quitting uh, there's the statistics where they they quit they don't last long and probably the main reason is because of the criticism they get and people have to understand is just as much as their kids are learning how to play the sport a lot of those officials are learning how to officiate the sport so, you know, if you're going to let your kid get away with making a few mistakes, you got to let the official be able to make a few mistakes, too. The officials don't set out to try and, you know, 
be bad officials. They're trying their hardest, and but they're a lot of them are inexperienced. And if, if we don't have officials, we don't have a game. Well said. Rob, thank you so much for all the thoughts. Oh, you're welcome. Rob Suzuki. How about that? Perspective of a dad and a convener and a father of two pretty amazing hockey players, Nick and Ryan Suzuki. After news, we're going to continue. We've been talking sports. Can we just do a little bit more? How about the Vegas Golden Knights story? One of the most amazing stories in sports this year in about 11, 12 minutes. We'll have that for you. Right now, time for news with Jacqueline LaBelle on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Big hi to Brent. Big hi to Rose. We are going to try and tell the story of the inaugural season of the Vegas Golden Knights in about 11 or 12 minutes. And I don't mean we're going to do it in 11 or 12 minutes. I mean we're going to try and condense it into 11 or 12 minutes. We are going to be speaking with the Director of Hockey Operations with the Vegas Golden Knights. They finally slow down a little bit. Think about it. Run to the Stanley Cup in their first season, and then you've got the NHL entry draft, and then development camps, and then free agency opens. And, well, now it's a little bit quieter. So we can actually take stock of what the best year in any major pro sports franchise history in their inaugural season has been. It it was amazing. You just you don't go to a championship in your first year. You just don't. They did. And so we'll get some insight into that. And I mentioned we were going to be talking about this. And two different people have emailed me. Colin has emailed and David has emailed. And both have said, hey, can you ask, in this case, Misha Donskov, who we're going to speak with, can you ask if what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas when you live there? Well, that's what Colin said. David just said, can you ask him whether what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Okay, I will ask Misha if what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We've spent a lot of time on the show today talking about people who get upset at sporting events. Just want you to know, it's not only sporting events. You can still go online and watch the video of the unfortunate, do we call it a hate crime? Because no charges have been filed. But what happened at a grocery store in the north end of London that seemed to have no real reason behind it. We still don't have the full picture of what took place. We also have a New Jersey homeowner who was looking to leave his house today, and there was a bus blocking his driveway, and it was a bus carrying a lot of people who were going to a church event, I guess. And so he knocked on the door and said to the driver, uh, can you move your bus? You're in my way. And the bus driver said, are you going to use the driveway? I don't see relevance in what you're saying. And so the guy apparently told the bus driver, you're transporting people here. Um, can you just transport a little further away so that I can make use of my driveway? The bus driver actually gets off, and there's a picture of this. bus driver actually gets off and moons the homeowner. Where, where does this come from? What is going wrong in our lives that this is taking place? All right, we need a happily ever after story to 
end the show. And as much as, no, they didn't win the Stanley Cup, when you're an expansion team and you make it all the way to the Stanley Cup final, uh, that's pretty happily ever after. We'll tell the story of the Vegas Golden Knights inaugural season in about a span of 11 minutes next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We've been waiting to do this for a while on London Live, but we had to wait for the hockey season to slow down a little bit for the Vegas Golden Knights. For most expansion teams, the season ends as soon as it can. Here's the end of your schedule. Goodbye, we'll see you next year. They made it all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And it's time just to look back and appreciate this and ask a few questions. Yes, like, is... What happens in, does what happens in Vegas stay in Vegas? I, I promise I'll ask that question. But just to look back and talk about the best season ever by an expansion team in sports history. Happily ever after to end the show, even if it didn't end in a championship. Misha Donskov spent some time in London, worked for the London Knights for a few years, kind of kicked off his hockey management career, went to the Ottawa 67s, from there went to Hockey Canada, from Hockey Canada went to the Vegas Golden Knights, and he joins us right here and right now. Misha, how are things? Yeah, it sure does, and uh, thanks a lot, uh, Mike. It's always good to talk hockey with you, and I appreciate you having me on, but uh, it's uh, it's been an incredible year, a lot of fun, and uh, certainly uh, it's been an amazing experience. Well, when we said we were going to have you on, we had a few people say, you have to ask him something. You have to ask him this. And I thought, wow, I wonder what it's going to be. And as I read down on the email, it was, does everything that happens in Vegas stay in Vegas? We got two versions of that. So what do you say? <laughs> well, I sure hope it does. <laughs> I sure hope we can continue to do what uh, what we've done here. It's uh, Like I said, it's certainly been a lot of fun and uh Hopefully we can continue to build on uh, what we achieved last year. Mish, at any point during this season, certainly not after the expansion draft or maybe the NHL entry draft of 2017, but was there any point where you said, you know what, I think this team could make it to the Stanley Cup final? I think, uh, I think Mike, after, uh, after Christmas, um, you know, our team started to really galvanize as a group and we started to really put together a, a, a string of, of games where we were winning and, and we were playing the right way. We were playing fast. We were playing with a lot of pace. Um, we had depth up and down our lineup. Our goaltending uh, was real solid. And I think after Christmas when we really started to to um, galvanize as a, as a group, um, you know, we started to think that we had a, a real opportunity to do to do something special. We're talking with Misha Donskov, Director of Hockey Operations with the Vegas Golden Knights, looking back over one of the most amazing years in any business. doesn't even have to be sports. This is just amazing, period. Do people continuously ask you, how did you guys do this? Is that maybe the most popular question for the Vegas Golden Knights? Yeah, it is, Mike. I've been asked that question a lot, and... Um... You know, for me, when I kind of hit the rewind button and, and look back on my two years here, I can't believe it's gone so fast. Uh, but I think there were a lot of things that led to the, you know, the success that our team had uh, last year on the ice. I think first and foremost, the vision that Bill Foley uh, had to bring hockey to Las Vegas, uh, and ultimately he saw an opportunity here, and, and he knew that the fans would 
would embrace this team and and, and really uh, rally around it, and, and he was right. So I think that was one. I think uh, the job that our pro scouting staff, uh, led by Von Carplin, who's our director of player personnel, Kelly McCrimmon, our assistant general manager, and ultimately George, our GM, uh, did an expansion uh, with a selection of players and and getting the right players and players that we thought, you know, if they had additional opportunity at the NHL level, they could really, you know, elevate their game. And uh, I think the job that that group did in expansion was just uh, tremendous. And, and I give a lot of uh, respect and, and kudos uh, to our pro scouting staff, again, led by Vaughn, led by Kelly, led by George. Um, the job that our coaching staff did, uh, Gerard Gallant, Mike Kelly, Ryan McGill, Ryan Craig, our video coach, Tommy Cruz, uh, galvanizing this group, getting this team together quickly um, on the same page, playing a real fast, up-tempo style pressure game. Uh, it's been tremendous. Uh, our fan base has just been outstanding. And, you know, for our players to play at T-Mobile Arena in front of a loud, passionate, engaging uh, audience and the city's rallied around our team, uh, it's it been really, really special. I give our fans a lot of credit. And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the players. And uh, these guys came to Vegas with a big chip on their shoulder. And, uh, you know, they were left exposed by their previous clubs on expansion lists. And they felt like they had something to prove. And uh, James Neal uh, gave our group the term Golden Misfits. And, and, and the guys kind of rallied around that. And, and um, they, they felt like they were out to prove something. And, and uh, they really bonded as a group. And uh, uh, certainly did something special last year. So I think, you know, it was a combination of all those things, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, our group just kept building on the momentum and building on the momentum and obviously led to uh, a long playoff run and, and uh, something pretty special in our team's first year. Outstanding. We're talking with Misha Donskov, Director of Hockey Operations with the Vegas Golden Knights. Misha, you mentioned the fans, and I think from anyone who was kind of watching Vegas, that was one of those stories that you wanted to see how it played out because before any team broke ground as a professional organization at a a major level like the National Hockey League or like soon to be the NFL in Vegas, you had this sense that, ah, you know, that... You won't necessarily get the support. It's it's not like that here. And even if you talk to workers there, it was, well, you know, the shift changes are a little different. We work different hours here. But, wow. I mean, when did you start to sense just how close Mr. Foley was going to be to being right about the fan base? Right away. Right away, Mike. It, it, it's been incredible how this city has embraced this team. Um, our home opener in October, on October 10th against uh, the Arizona Coyotes uh, after the horrible tragedy uh, on October 1 in, in, in Las Vegas was an emotional, and emotional evening uh, on so many levels for the city of Las Vegas, for the franchise. Uh, but to see the city come together and, and, and really rally around a hockey team and to see our players embrace the city and their new home uh, was one of the greatest memories in my in my time as a hockey professional, and and I think from that point on, um, the, the the fans were were behind this team and supported this team, and this is this team's Vegas born, and 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 they believe it's it's theirs as they should, 
uh, and uh, they continue to support us every day, and, and it's been real, real special. There was a fan who was interviewed in the playoffs, and she talked about the fact that Vegas had never really had that community feel to it. And then you arrived, and your team arrived, and now that exists. Do people talk about that at all? They do, Mike. It's unbelievable, you know, just to, I live in a suburb of Vegas where the majority of our group lives and our players live called Summerlin. And, uh, you know, just, just to be in this area and, and see all the Golden Knights logos, the hats, the T-shirts, uh, the jerseys, um, you know, in the grocery store, at the restaurant, uh, it's, it's, it's their team. And, and they're really passionate about it. And, and they felt like they really got something to believe in. And, uh, and, and it's been special, real special to see how the city has embraced our group. Uh, and again, how our players have enjoyed living here and, and integrated into the community and, and, and enjoyed being a part of the city. Now the NFL is set to arrive very soon. Do you talk with Oakland at all about what that might be like, or is it a little too soon for that? Yeah, you know what? I know our business group has, and, and we're certainly looking forward to, to having the National Football League here. You know, we think there's great opportunities uh, for, for both franchises. Uh, and, and we're excited to have the Raiders here. I know that the, uh, the construction for, for the new stadium is well underway, and there's, there's a lot of talk in the community about that as well. And we think it's a great opportunity to kind of partner together. And, uh, you know, now being a city with two major, major league franchises is pretty special. And I guess if we look going forward, the, the hunger to prove, like you said, to prove that the Golden Misfits as they called themselves, could get something done, could prove themselves. How do you continue that into year two? Well, you know what? I, I spent three years in, in London, as you know, with the, with the London Knights. And uh, my, uh, my previous boss, Mark and Dale Hunter, always used to tell me every day that hockey's a humbling game. And, uh, and, and it is. And uh, you can never rest. You always have to look for ways to improve your team and to get better and always push. Uh, our ultimate goal, uh, like all 31 clubs in the league, is to win the Stanley Cup. And, uh, and we didn't reach it. So we got to continue to push. we got to continue to look to upgrade our team and get better. Um, you know, inches uh, at this level are everything, and, and we got to continue to upgrade. Uh, so we're going to do whatever we can to, to win a Stanley Cup here and to continue to push. And, and to realize that it is a humbling game and, uh, and, and you can't rest on your success. Any one moment stand out to you when you want to think back over the season when maybe you're driving or, you know, you're just sitting back? Anything you like to think about? Oh, there's so many memories, uh, Mike, so many memories. Um, you know, when I first got here, the, the building of our new facility in Summerlin, um, to go through that whole expansion process was, was just so incredible where you get to, essentially have a blank canvas and, and, and select your, your, your team with, with a group of people who come together from various organizations and various experiences uh, in hockey from all over the world. You get to learn from them. You get to get better. Um, and that was certainly incredible. I think the most profound impact for me, and I, and I alluded to this earlier, was our home opener against Arizona uh, on October the 10th. And uh, just an incredible night. And it's really when uh, you saw everything really come together. You saw the city embrace the team. You saw the team 
kind of embraced uh, the city. Um, you saw our players on the ice, really, in Las Vegas, at T-Mobile Arena, playing on the strip uh, for the first time. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a real special night. Books will be written about this. Who knows, maybe a movie will be made about it one day. In the meantime, you're still carving out the story. Mish, congratulations and uh, continued success on Chapter Number 2. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on, and enjoy the rest of your summer. You too. And Misha wanted to pass on, uh, he wanted me to make sure and say this after the interview, that he wanted to say hi to everybody he ever ran across in London. Absolutely loved his time here. We are almost at the end of the show. We'll close it out in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It's still a little windy. It's not exactly sunny outside, and we are expecting a bit of rain. Just a tweet from Delaware Speedway saying tonight's racing is on as scheduled. There's no talk about any changes to the London Majors game at this point. Let me just double-check. Let me just make sure. No, it's still a go, and looks okay, and we'll, we'll hope. And the Home County Folk Festival, Jim Cuddy Band, is playing tonight. And that is still a go as well. So things shaping up for a really great weekend in this area, as usual. Coming up on Monday, we are still going to we'll find somebody on this, because I, I really believe it deserves more of a conversation. The bystander effect. And I have a few lines in the water on this, and I, I'm terrible when it comes to fishing. I don't fish well at all, but I'm hoping that one of these lines catches something over the weekend. We'll look at that. And I also want to go back to a line that came up during our conversation today with a man who has put together a Facebook page that he admits it is out there to show people how silly they look when they yell at you sports, Brian Barlow. But he used a line. I want to examine that a little bit more. The idea that you use Facebook or other posts, whether they be Instagram, or, to validate what you're doing. There is a great book out there, and it is the subtle art of not giving a, and we can't say the other word on radio, but I want to talk about that too. So we'll get into that next week. London Live is a presentation of Winmar, your restoration specialist. Thank you to Christian Devino. News is next. You are listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.